And now we take you to Evangel Assembly of God in Tallahassee, Florida, to another powerful, life-changing message. For more information, visit our website, evangelag.org. Let me ask you a question. Who comes to mind when you think of the world's wealthiest people? How many of you think of Bill Gates? How many of you think of Warren Buffett as one of the world's wealthiest people? How many of you think of your great uncle? Wouldn't that be nice? Forbes magazine says that uh, Bill Gates, the co-founder of the Microsoft Corporation, has a net worth of $66 billion. Not million, but billion dollars. Warren Buffett, the chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, has a net worth of $46 billion. That's more than you and I could make in hundreds of lifetimes. And Yet the tens of billions of dollars that Bill Gates and that Warren Buffett are worth, you know, they don't begin to match what one man in the Bible gave to God for his work. You see, before he died, King David wanted in the worst way, he was about 80 years of age, King David wanted to build a temple for God. It was David who, when he became king, he had the vision of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And they failed the first time. The second time, they brought it correctly into Jerusalem. They set up a little pup tent, and they call it, in Acts chapter 13, it's called the Tabernacle of David. In fact, God says, I will raise up again the Tabernacle of David. So here this, the Ark of the covenant where the glory of God resounds and lives there between the wings of the cherubim. It's under this pup tent. And David says, I'm living in a lavish palace. I want to build something nice for God. And God said, David is not your plan. It's not my plan for you, for you to build this. I want your son Solomon to build it. And David wasn't discouraged, but David began to, he got some architects involved. They designed the, the, the temple. He began to amass building materials. He began to amass all kinds of gold and silver. In fact, this is what he said to Solomon in First Chronicles 22, beginning at verse 14. He says, I have taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, quantities of bronze and iron too great to be weighed, and wood and stone. And you may add to them, you have many workmen, stonecutters, masons, and carpenters, as well as men skilled in every kind of work in gold and silver, bronze and iron craftsmen beyond number. Now begin the work and the Lord will be with you. Now these are some pretty staggering figures here. A hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver. Let's put them into some modern day language and figure out exactly what David gave. A talent weighs about 70 pounds. And that means that David gave roughly 3,750 tons of gold or about seven million, seven and a half million pounds of gold. If you multiply that by 16 ounces in a pound, and I realize that gold and silver, precious metals today are sold in the troy ounces, but understand troy ounces just go back to the Roman period and David gave his gift thousands of years before the Romans were ever thought of. So let's go ahead and, and, and just for, for our purposes say there's 16 ounces in a pound. Gold today is selling for $1,550 an ounce, okay? 
When you multiply all that out, what you find is that David gave somewhere between $170 billion and $186 billion worth of gold. Everybody say a billion. 186 of them. Now turn to somebody and say, that's a lot of gold. Well, how much silver did he give? If you add to that his 37,500 tons of silver, today that's worth between 30 and $32 billion in today's money. When you add up what David gave in gold and in silver, it was between 200 and $218 billion worth of gold and silver. Folks, that's four or five times um, the amount of money that, that, that Bill Gates and that Warren Buffett are worth. It's a huge amount of money. In fact, it was probably the most extravagant gift that's ever been given in the history of the world. And you got to ask the question, why did David give such an extravagant gift? What would motivate him? I want you to please hear me. Hear this preacher right now. I believe David had a clear crystal recognition that every single thing in his life that every shekel, that every sheep, that every cow, that every sandal, that every fringe on his garments came from Almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth. And everything belongs to the Lord. And so David said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And David says, God's been so good to me, I just want to extravagantly give back to my extravagant God. Here's our first point this morning. When we really get in touch with our Heavenly Father, when you really have a relationship with God through Christ, when you really know the joy of your sins forgiven, then you and I can become extravagant in our response to God because He's extravagant by nature. You know, people that get extravagant in their worship, they don't bother me too much. In fact, some of us just need to remember what it was like before we came to Christ. I know a man named John. John's now in heaven. But John lived a rough life, came from a really rough family. He made it through about the sixth grade, and then he he dropped out of school and made his living in construction and fishing and doing anything he could. John abused alcohol. He abused his wife. He abused his children. He abused his neighbors. He was a nasty person to be around. You did not want to be around John. But at 43 years of age, somebody told John about a God that would forgive him of his sins. Somebody told John about a Jesus Christ who was the Lord and King of the universe who had given his life and shed his blood for John. And John placed his faith in the shed blood of Christ as the full payment for his sins. He said, God, forgive me. God, fill me with your spirit. And God made John a new creature in Christ. God changed that man from the inside out. And when John would come to church and we'd begin singing worship him worship him you could hear john singing because he was a little louder than everybody else and he was a little off key but john knew where he had came from and when he'd start lifting his hands and he'd begin dancing a little jig and he'd get excited and some people would maybe be a little embarrassed of John, but I'm going to tell you something, John knew what God had taken him out of. He knew he had taken him out of the miry clay. He knew that he used to be in sin. He knew that he was destined for hell. He knew that life was terrible, but he had tasted of the goodness of the Lord. He had tasted of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had gotten filled with the 
Holy Ghost. He had started living according to the word of God. And his wife got a brand new husband. And his children got a brand new daddy. And his neighbors got a brand new neighbor. And I'm telling you, we serve a God who will take us and he'll clean us up from the guttermost to the uttermost. From the, from, from, from the penitentiary all the way to the penthouse. He knows what he's doing. He's a God who says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Come on now. You say, what are you doing today, Terrell? I'm just trying to stir you up to get extravagant in your love for Jesus. I'm trying to stir you up. Some of us have been saved so long, we've forgotten what life used to be like when we didn't know the Lord. But I'm telling you, we just need to drink deeply of his forgiveness again. We need to go have a drink at Joel's place and have, I'll say, I'll have another glass of that grace. I'll have what she's having. I'll have what he's having. I'm just going to saddle right up to the, right up to the place where they're serving the mighty glory of God. And I'll say, I'd like to have some drinks of that living water and out of my innermost being will flow rivers of living water. When you think about the nature of God, when you think about his nature, sometimes we say, well, you know, God is love. God is just. God is holy. But I would remind you in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah got a vision of God, he saw this angel, these seraphim that are flying over the throne of God, and all they can cry out is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That word holy means perfect, it means sinless, it means pure, it means righteous. See, they weren't just saying holy once and that's all there is to it. They said holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Holy, 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 holy. Folks, God is not just a little bit holy. He's not just a little bit just. He's not just a little bit loving. Our God is lavishly, abundantly, excessively, bountifully loving and just and holy in every part of his being. He is an extravagant God and he deserves extravagant responses of worship. Come on. If this doesn't stir your clock, your clock's not working. Here's the second point. It's this extravagant reality of God that King David got in touch with. When they first brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, David took off his coat. <laughs> he began shouting. He began dancing. He began hopping up and down. And he began worshiping. He was excited. And his wife, Michael, looked down through the window and she despised him. She criticized him when he came home that night. Folks, let me tell you something. Religious people don't like to be around extravagant worship. Come on. People that have been there, done that, bought a t-shirt, don't always like to be around extravagant worship. 
But David said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in thee. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he delivered me out of all of my fears. Can you say hallelujah? The closer you get to Jesus... Man, the more you hang around God, the clearer God's extravagance is going to register on your heart. And the more God's extravagance registers on your heart, hopefully it's going to percolate up to your consciousness. Solomon got the message. At least for the first part of his life he did. He got the message and he built this beautiful temple. He brings the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. The, 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 the Levites come in, and as they're dedicating it, the glory cloud of God, the Shekinah glory of God, the Holy Ghost came into that place. Nobody has left standing. Everybody's flat on their back under the glory, under the power of God. Solomon dedicates the temple. And then in verse 63 of 1 Kings, 1 Kings 8.63 says this. It says, Solomon offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord. What kind of offerings? Did you know that God likes to fellowship with you? Come on now. He loves that song in the garden. says, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. Oh, the joy that we share as we gather there. Other people don't even know about it. He was offering fellowship offerings. Hebrews chapter 13 Verse 17 says, excuse me, verse 15 says, let us therefore offer the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips, giving praise to his name. There are times that your body and your emotions are not going to feel like worshiping Jesus. There are times that you're just having a rough day. And that's the very time that you and I just need to, 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 to recognize, hey, I serve an extravagant God and things may be nasty right now. Things may not be going so good, but I'm going to give my God glory and I'm going to give him praise. I'm going to give him the sacrifice of praise. I'm going to have fellowship with him. See, if you're not fellowshipping with God, you're fellowshipping with your worries. So many times you're having fellowship with your anxiety. You're having fellowship with your fears. You're having fellowship with your depression. You're having fellowship with, with negative emotions. When God says, you don't have to do that. You can take on the garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. You can give me glory. You can give me praise. Solomon offered a sacrifice of, everybody say it, fellowship offerings. Say that again. Fellowship offerings. He was just saying, what he's saying, I love you, Jesus. I love you, God. I'm just so grateful for what you've done in my life. I'm just so grateful. Now note the magnitude of these offerings. 22,000 cattle. Everybody say 22,000. Now tell somebody, that's a lot of cows. Now watch this. And 120,000 sheep and goats. Come on, say it. 122,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple to the Lord. I, I have a hard, I read that and I have a hard time grasping the significance of dedicating the temple and sacrificing 142,000 animals. I can't even imagine what the sights and the smells and the sounds were like in this gigantic 
worship service. I just, I think about it, and I just want to say, Jesus, I want to thank you that we don't have to offer sacrifices of animals today. It's not the blood of bulls and goats and turtle doves. It's not the blood of goats and sheep, but it's the blood that you shed at Calvary for me, for, for everyone. It's the blood that you shed that, 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 that is the full atonement for all of my sins. I give you glory. Now, why did Solomon do that? Why did he sacrifice 142,000 animals? God didn't command it. He did it because he just wanted to say, I just want to say thank you. I've got it at my disposal, and I am going to worship you. See, his daddy had said, I'm not going to worship God with that which costs me nothing. He says, God, I'm going to worship you because you are a magnanimous God. You're a God that's extravagant. You're the God that made the heavens and the earth. And I'm going to worship you with all that I am and all that I have. You say, well, that was pretty good for Solomon. I mean, he was a rich king. It's pretty good for David to give billions of dollars in gold and silver because he was rich too. I'm not a rich king. Did you know that extravagant worship isn't reserved just for the wealthy? Look at Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. And many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Did you know that in some Bibles it says they were worth an eighth of a penny? Anybody here get excited about getting an eighth of a penny? Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. Why did this poor widow woman, why did she give everything to God? I think it's because she loved God with all her heart. I believe she loved God with all her soul. I believe it's because she loved God with all her mind. Jesus noticed this lady. So here's our question for you and for me. Do we worship God to the extent that, that we get heaven's attention? Is Jesus saying, hey, would, would you look at, look at that guy down there at Evangel? Look at that woman down there. Look at the way they're worshiping me. Look at what they put in the offering. Look at what happened. Look at, look at the way they're giving me glory. Look at the way they're giving me praise. Are you getting heaven's attention with your worship? You know, Kathy and I took a major, major step of faith. And it was a major step of surrender for us to God's will. When I resigned my position at Regent University, <clears throat> and we moved up to Illinois to plant a church, we knew two families on the North Shore of Chicago where we were planting, and we knew that we didn't have any venture capital to get things off the ground, so we had taken our retirement, which at, at that time I had a whopping sum of $50,000 in my retirement account. I was 30, 34 years of age, and we just cashed it out. didn't dawn on me that I was going to have to pay taxes on it later, but we just cashed it out. We gave the money to the church, and so we, we bought the first church van with that money. We went and bought a keyboard, a cord keyboard. We went and bought a PA system. We bought microphones. We bought all the things you needed to start having church and get things going. On the day that we moved into our rental house, 
it began to snow. And it turned out to be a massive storm system that, that left over two feet of snow on the ground. We'd been around snow some, but never that much. And, um, you know, Southerners are dangerous when they start driving on ice and snow. We are. And one thing I've learned is you just got to give your time, give yourself time to break. Don't go too fast. And give yourself time to break and you steer into a, into a skid, not out of that skid. Well, we had gone to the mall the, 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 the week previous because in order to enroll our kids in, in school and they were in a private Christian school, we couldn't even enroll them unless they had ski suits and boots so they could go out at recess. That was something new for us. And so we'd gone to the mall and when we, when we parked in the mall, we noticed these, these bright yellow pieces of rope that were tied across the parking lot and they were about five or six foot tall and we couldn't figure out what their purpose but after that snowstorm we went back to the mall and you couldn't see the parking spaces because there's snow and ice there but we could see those bright yellow pieces of rope so we knew where to park it was a different world for us it was a different culture and frankly it was it was taking us a long time to get used to this northern midwestern way of, of life, and, and it was hard on people in our church having to get used to us Southerners. I mean, really was. And um, I remember one morning I was, I was down in our, the basement of this rental house, and I was praying, and I heard the Holy Spirit say these words to me, Terrell, surrender. Terrell, Surrender. And I looked around, I thought, God, are you in the right basement talking to the right person? I've surrendered everything I know how to surrender. God, I quit my job. I've given my retirement to the church. I'm now making half of what I used to make. We're living in a house that's smaller than the house we had in Virginia, but I can't even afford to buy it because it costs twice as much as the house I left. I'm renting it for $1,400 a month. God, I shouldn't be paying that much. I don't, I don't make that much money. God, I'm paying private Christian school tuition for my girls. I never dreamed I'd spend this much money till we got them in college. Are you sure you're talking to the right person telling them to surrender? I've given you everything. And then I just start feeling sorry for myself. You ever do that? I begin saying, God, what my idea to be a pastor? God, I wanted to go into business. God, I wanted to go into real estate and into, into insurance and, and I wanted to make a pile of money, Lord. I want to make more money than anybody in my family's ever made. And I wanted everybody to say, that boy is smart and he's really made it. And I knew when I felt called to the ministry, I knew I'd always be looking over my shoulder wondering, God, is there going to be enough money? God, are you going to take care of us? And then I'd be one of those kind of people. Felt sorry for myself. I'm going to tell you something. Though I was resentful that day when God said, Terrell, surrender, I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit has never stopped whispering those words to my heart. God just kept saying, you know, some some of you might be thinking, well, Terrell, you shouldn't have talked to God that way. He can take it. I mean, just read the Psalms. I mean, somebody wrote that over half the Psalms are wintry Psalms. They're not summer happy Psalms. Over half of them are wintry psalms because David was just frustrated. See, it, one of the, when you do get frustrated, don't hold it inside. Don't let it become bitterness inside. You go ahead and tell God and let God deal with you. Let God talk to you about it. See, the Holy Spirit that day was telling Terrell, surrender, and he's never stopped. 
That's a message he's never stopped saying to me. Terrell surrendered. And you know, over the years, I've learned just how much I don't know about surrendering to God. I'm more surrendered now than I've ever been in my life. But I'm telling you what, there's a whole lot more for me to learn. And there's more for you to learn. And we're on our way. Today, we're going to celebrate communion. And I think about Jesus. Jesus breaking bread and sharing the cup in that very first communion. And I, I, and I see in my mind's eye those 12 disciples sitting around the table. And I, I don't know about you, but, but, but when I think about Peter and James and John and Matthew and Nathaniel, who was also called Bartholomew, when I, when I think about those 12 disciples, sometimes I think of them as superheroes. But the truth is that they were flesh and blood, just like you and me. In fact, Somebody said that they were common men with an uncommon calling. And Jesus didn't select the 12 disciples because they were especially smart or extraordinary or wealthy or talented. I mean, several of them were fishermen and one of them was a, was a tax collector, collector and two of them were zealots. That means they wanted to overthrow Rome's control of Israel. One of them was a, went beyond being a, a zealot. He was a rebel and his name was Judas and they were just a whole lot, whole lot like you and me. But God used them to change this world. And here's the third point I want to share with you. The next time you feel like a nobody, I want you to remember that you're exactly the kind of person Jesus chose to change the world. And I want you to hear me because this is a prophetic word for somebody. God would remind you that he knows the plans he's got for you and their plans for good and not for evil and to give you a future and to give you a hope. And I want you to hear this word. Somebody, even this week, you've been saying God doesn't have any plans for me. I can't trust him. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what the future holds. I'm telling you, you may not know the future, but you know who holds the future and you know who's the one that's the glory and the lifter of your head. He's the glory and lift of your soul and today you're to shake off the attacks of the devil today you're to shake off the lies of the enemy god says i know the plans i've got for you they are good plans they are not evil plans they are to give you a future and they are to give you a hope can you say hallelujah now i don't know who that's for but i wasn't intending to say that but that's for somebody in this room and right now in jesus name i just encourage you to start shaking off those lies from hell start shaking off those lies in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The next time you feel like a nobody, remember that you're exactly the kind of person Jesus chose to change the world. I want everybody in this, this house to stand as our ushers are coming. We're going to celebrate communion. Church is not over. And ask you please not to leave. We're going to celebrate com- communion. And this will be the last Sunday that we're able to do this because Starting May 5th, we're just going to have one combined service for the summer, if we can all fit in here. I'm not sure we can. Ushers are just going to stand at the head of every row. And I'm going to ask you to come down here, take the communion elements from them, and come and stand as close as you as you can in around this altar. Amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound 
that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did come in as close as you can to let others come in behind you. The hour I first believe. Come on in a little closer. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love. Amazing grace The Lord The Lord has promised good to me His word my hope secures He my shield and portion be as long as life endures. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me, and like a flood. His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine beyond my help this here below will be forever mine my chains are gone I've been set free my God my Savior has ransomed me and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. My chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior has ransomed me, and like a Mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and in your mind's eye, I want you to see Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, 
instituting the first Eucharist, the first communion meal. They've celebrated the Passover and Jesus takes a loaf of bread and he breaks it. He says, this is my body broken for you. At that point in time, those disciples who weren't all together sure even what was going on, Jesus was challenging them. He's saying, guys, are you going to be all in with me? Are you going to serve me? You're going to run away? You're going to be like the world? See, Jesus knew that Judas had already betrayed him. He had already agreed to accept 30 pieces of silver. See, because Judas was a consumer Christian. Judas was only serving Jesus for what he could get out of it. It's easy to fall into consumer Christianity and think we're serving Jesus only for the benefits of going to heaven, only for the benefits of healing, only for the benefits that he supplies every need, only for the benefits of the loaves and the fishes, only for the benefits of what he does. Thank God for his benefits, but we don't serve him for the benefits. You see, if you serve him for the benefits, at some point in time, things are going to get too hot and you're going to get uncomfortable. But 11 of those 12, I believe that night they were saying, Jesus, we're all in. We surrender. I believe they were pushing their chips to the middle of the table. And they were saying, Jesus, you can have all of us. We surrender everything we are. Lord, we surrender our opinions. We surrender our ideas. You know, I never cease to be amazed. I have people that go out of their way sometimes to tell me how they think church should be. They've never pastored, they've never led a church, but they think they know how it should be. And I so much just want to say, my brother, my sister, just go back to the scriptures. Just read what the Bible says. The Bible says, don't be wise in your own opinion. See, it's not about you and me. It's about Jesus. It's about what he wants. And Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body. And Paul had this tremendous revelation in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that we are the body of Christ that the church, that the redeemed, that we constitute his body. Soldiers say that the strongest camaraderie, the strongest relationship that they can have are when they're in a foxhole facing death with other comrades who are also in that foxhole. They said when they face death together, there's something that cements their hearts together. And I believe on that first communion service, the night before Jesus was crucified, He was cementing, the Holy Spirit was cementing the hearts of those disciples together. I know after Jesus was arrested, they scattered. I know that they hid for the next couple of weeks. But you know what? A day of Pentecost came. And a rushing mighty wind was heard. And it began blowing in that house. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And God used those men to to turn this world upside down. Not because there was anything special about them. But because they were fully surrendered to Jesus. They were fully surrendered to God. Lord, I surrender all. Just before we partake of the bread and the cup, would you say that? Would you just say, Jesus, I give you everything? Come on. Jesus, I surrender. Jesus, I'm all in. I'm pushing the chips towards you. God, I'm going to drink deeply of your grace. I'm going to drink deeply of your forgiveness. I'm going to drink deeply of your word. Lord, I'm all in. Lord, it's not about me and my opinions. Oh, Jesus, it's about you. Oh, Jesus, I live for you. 
There were two zealots who were part of those 12 disciples. There was Judas who betrayed Christ. There was also another man named Simon. Do you know church history tells us that Simon was crucified with nails in his hands just like Jesus. Jude, who was also named, known as Thaddeus, died on a cross. Matthew was slain with a pickaxe in Ethiopia. Philip was stoned to death. James the Great was beheaded. Thomas took the gospel to, to, to India and he was killed by a spear by a pagan priest. John was boiled in a pot of hot oil and somehow he survived and then was exiled to the island of Patmos off the coast of Turkey. Simon Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. James the Lesser was stoned and then beaten to death with a club. Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew, was crucified. Judas. Judas was a consumer. And Judas betrayed Christ and a few hours later committed suicide. He hung himself. That's what consumer Christianity will do to you. It'll leave you high and dry. But if you'll say, Jesus, I'm not a consumer. I'm an extravagant worshiper. I'm, a, I'm one that surrendered all to you. If you'll surrender everything to Jesus, I'm telling you, you'll never be sorry for it. Our lives are not our own, Paul says. We've been bought with a price. And in light of that fact, I want you to say again, Jesus, I'm all in. Come on, say it. Jesus, I'm all in. I give you everything. I give you everything, Jesus. I'll not hold back. Everything, Lord. Everything, Lord. Let's partake together. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we do show forth the Lord's coming. It's a sermon. <clears throat> this is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said. In my blood. As we drink this together, some of you just need to say, Lord, I, I want to drink deeply of your grace. Lord, I've I, I just got cobwebs and complacency in my heart, Lord, and I've lost my first love. And Lord, I ask you to forgive me for that. I'm, I'm critical and there's some bitterness and I've gotten hurt. And Lord, I've not processed those hurts and now it's coming out and it's defiling me and defiling other people. God, I just want to drink deeply of your grace. I want to drink deeply of your forgiveness. I want to drink deeply of your mercy, Lord. I surrender, Jesus. We pray right now that God uses this message to plant good eternal seeds deep into your soul. For more information, visit our website, evangelag.org. Evangel's all about making the name of Jesus famous and His church glorious. We love God, love people, and love life. And we're here for you, working to help draw people from impossible situations into a loving and friendly circle of hope where answers are found and acceptance is given. We invite you to join us for any of our services, Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday evenings at 7. We're located at 2300 Old Bainbridge Road in Tallahassee. We have fantastic programs for kids and youth and small groups to make deeper connections. And we pray that God blesses you richly and abundantly as you continue to seek Him first in all of your life.